This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us. I just spoke with Tim Maudlin about his recent book, Philosophy of Physics, Space and Time. This came out in 2012 with Princeton University Press. This is a book that's meant to introduce some of the basic concepts and really, but to, to kind of deeply engage with the basic concepts of space and time in the context of an approach to physics and physical ideas that is based in philosophical accounts, but really is heavily grounded in the history of physics as well. So it's a volume that you can come to. It's written in a very approachable, very um, kind of wonderfully conversational tone um, in, in a lot of the book. It's a volume you can come to with no expertise whatsoever or with some degree of familiarity with the practice of physics, the concepts of physics as a student of physics, as a professor, or none of the above, and take a lot away from it. We talked about the process of coming to the approach that he took to put the volumes together. We talked about how to situate this within the larger set of two volumes, actually, that this will ultimately be part of, the second of which will deal more directly with ideas of matter, um, thermodynamics, quantum theory, entropy, statistical mechanics. And we also talked about the ways that this volume is kind of contextualized within a larger frame of different approaches to teaching, to explaining, and also to learning basic concepts in the philosophy of physics. So it really was a pleasure, and I hope you enjoy both the conversation and also reading the volume. We're here today to talk with Tim Maudlin about his new book, Philosophy of Physics, Space and Time. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Tim, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Well, thanks for having me. So could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you in the first place? If you can kind of conceptualize this, I know this, this tends to be a really broad question, <laughs> sometimes difficult to answer, but let's start in anyway. What brought you to the philosophy of science and to physics in particular? Well, when I was an undergraduate, um, what I found was that I kept bouncing around between physics courses and philosophy courses and actually classics courses. And I didn't quite know what I was going to do. Um, the, 
I had a, a great interest in physics and in the physical world, but at a very foundational, fundamental level. And in the physics classes, you wouldn't get a lot of foundational discussion. You'd get a lot of time spent learning how to solve particular problems and a lot of mathematics. So uh, you go then to the philosophy classes and everything was foundational, but often seemed to lose contact with reality in a certain way. Um, and so my graduate degree is actually in history and philosophy of science because Basically, I got the best of both worlds. I got to do very conceptual, foundational work, but focused uh, on the sciences and physics was always my favorite science, I guess, because it's the most foundational and in a way, um, the most directly mathematical, which I felt very comfortable with. Now, the book that we're talking about is an introduction, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this in the context of um, perhaps another volume of the the two-volume work of which this makes up one, but this is one volume of an introduction to the philosophy of physics that focuses on fundamental notions of space and time. So before we get to the, uh, in detail, the scope of the volume and the nature of the volume, can you talk a little bit for us about how this volume fits within the larger trajectory of your own research? What brought you to this volume and, and what else have you been working on that um, so that we can situate this within your own work as a scholar? Well, the this particular volume um, was brought to me, as it were, than, rather than me being brought to it, because uh, Princeton University is issuing an entire series that are supposed to be introductory uh, books on the various large parts of philosophy. And actually, they first asked me to write a book just called Philosophy of Physics, which would have covered space and time and quantum theory and statistical physics. Uh, and when I started writing it, it had a very strict word limit. I just started to get very desperate um, because I had used more than half the space and hadn't finished the space and time part. So I called them up and basically begged them uh, to allow me to write two volumes, uh, which they did allow me to do, although they told me very strictly that I shouldn't beg them again to be three because it really ought to be three. Uh, so the, the context of this is a kind of, introductory overview was brought to me, I actually find it very useful. A similar thing happens. I teach a lot of summer schools. And in a summer school, unlike a regular conference, your thought is to present as clearly as you can the basics of the field as you understand them, having worked on them for a long time, often uh, presentations that wouldn't be appropriate for a conference where you're supposed to be presenting really novel work. And I always find that just very nice to be able to look back and try and put everything as cleanly and clearly as possible. So I sort of think of this volume as the result of having taught this sort of uh, topic for several decades and, and finding where the sharp edges in the discussion are and, and, and the sorts of things that people get confused about and trying to lay it out as clearly as I can. Right. And that's, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because in, um, in a little bit, that's something that I definitely wanted to ask you a little bit more about. It's just a really fascinating part of the kind of the Genesis story, if you will, of, of the volume. But similarly um, to the way that your own teaching has influenced um, how the volume looks and the kind of work that it does in your approaches, and we'll talk about that in detail um, in a moment. Early in the book, you also mentioned parts of the origin of how you thought about the volume 
in how you were taught um, and in your experience as a graduate student in history and philosophy of science at Pitt. So can you talk a little bit about that as a formative stage and how you conceptualized the project? Were there any really influential teachers or, or moments in that process of your own education early on that determined parts of what we see in the book here, parts of your approach to structuring and thinking about and conceptualizing the book? So I, I would say there are two parts that probably make my approach a little different that came from my graduate career. Part of it is is just the teaching, but that was uh, just good teaching. Clark Wimore was one of the people who introduced me to the subject, and he was kind enough to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, and uh, John Ehrman came right before I was leaving. But probably more important than that, quite honestly, is just because we were reading Newton and we were reading Galileo, we were reading works of science that were produced when still everyone was thinking very geometrically and using the tools of, of geometry as opposed to the tools of algebra. And I think very geometrically, I visualize things very geometrically. And if there's anything probably unusual about this presentation, it tries to be as geometrical as possible and get the algebra and the numerics out of the presentation. And probably it helped me a lot because that's just what Newton did. And that's just what Galileo did. Uh, but it's not what you would do if you were taking a physics course today, where the emphasis is always on doing things that can be put into computers and can be solved in particularly easy ways with pencil and paper. Uh, so that probably, it was probably spending a lot of time in the history of science that, that changed my perspective on how to think about these issues. So you also mentioned um, early on in our conversation, and it's very, um, or at least it immediately strikes me uh, as one reader reading the book, that this is something that has clearly come out of a lot of experience teaching, right? I mean, you're kind of passion for teaching and facility for teaching and commitment to communicating some of these really difficult ideas in ways that make them really clear comes out really, really strongly, at least for a reader who comes to this as a non-expert in the field of the philosophy of physics. So you've already mentioned teaching in summer schools a little bit. Can you talk some more about uh, not just summer school teaching, but more broadly, your teaching of the history and philosophy of physics? How um, specifically and generally, has, has that experience shaped the kinds of decisions that you made in the volume and the kinds of things that we see here as readers? Well, I, it's not so much, you said very nice things about my commitment and so on, but I'm sure everybody who teaches has the experience of being under the impression they understand something until they have to present it. And then all of a sudden, when you have to get up in front of a group of people and, and present it to them, you realize that there were parts that were unclear and you can't quite put into words uh, sharply in the right way. And so the, the ex I often say that a lot of my papers are just autobiographies of my confusions. Right? That is, you, you realize that you just didn't quite understand something until you had to explain it. And then you see that there's a problem, and then you sit down and try and work it out. And my thought is always that uh, simply, if I got confused about something, probably there are other people out there who got confused about it, too. And so I tend to try and signpost as clearly as I can those points where I had a kind of aha moment or a kind of breakthrough where I saw that there was some conceptual problem that I wasn't attending to. And once I got that cleared up, things 
went more smoothly. So I think this is uh, just what's forced upon you when you have to make the ideas as explicit as possible to communicate them to someone else. And, and over time, you you accumulate these various aha moments and try and put them all together. That's true, definitely. It, but at the same time, one of the things that's really striking about the volume that does make it so approachable and so clear is that is something that seems like it may have come out of teaching. I don't know, how, you know, I, I don't know if this comes out of your teaching, um, but it's not. It's the case that not every textbook or general introduction to a topic like this is necessarily written in a way that's very approachable, that's very colloquial, you know, has colloquial language woven into the narrative that sounds like and makes it feel like someone's actually talking to you and talking to you through the process on the page. That, can, that tends to be a relatively difficult balance to strike, and that's something that works really, really well here. So is can you talk a little bit about that, to your approach to the language of the text and this really striking and I think at times really sparkling colloquial language that makes it feel like a conversation? Is that something that you started with in this book from the very beginning, or is that something that came out of specific decisions well into the process? Oh, I, I think that's just the way I talk to myself. Because I, sometimes I say I've, I've really made a, a great deal of uh, profit out of being extremely simple-minded. That is, <laughs> I, I don't honestly follow really complicated arguments or really complicated ideas very easily. And, and for me, just to really feel like I understand what I'm doing, I have to break things down into uh, small steps and have very concrete applications that I can work through in my mind. Uh, so it's not so much that that I would write in a different tone for any other audience. This is the, the, the clarity insofar as you see it is what I need myself to make sure I'm clear about things. <laughs> it's great. So because you brought up audience, you mentioned in the book that this is something that's meant to appeal both to physics students and also to philosophy students. Can you talk a little bit about how you envision the audience for this book and what you had in mind when you were in the process of deciding on how to present these topics and how to structure the volume? So I, I take it that the basic question is just about the nature of space and time insofar as we understand it or insofar as there are theories about it. And my idea was to walk through some of the history of the development of different concepts of how space and time are put together, particularly in the physics literature, and get to the point where people could understand, I hope in a clear way, uh, the theory of relativity, uh, special relativity, particularly sharply and at least a kind of good hand-wavy idea of what's going on in general relativity. Um, now, when I say that one example from the book, which, which I've gotten quite a lot of feedback from, from physicists, is I spend a lot of time just going through the twins paradox in, in special relativity, which is probably the most famous example anyone ever talks about. And what I noticed was that the discussion in most of the physics texts and even the great physicists is just wrong. It's just factually inaccurate about how to understand the resolution of that particular problem. And so this was one of my aha moments when I finally figured out what was going on. And I think what happens is that physicists really appreciate attention 
to this sort of very basic conceptual foundational issues, again, because you just don't get it much in your physics classes. And I think these are the very same questions that appeal to, to philosophers. I mean, I think the basic desire for the most profound and deep uh, getting to the bottom of everything as far as you can is common to philosophy and to physics. The other thing I'll just mention as far as the, the physics audience is that, again, doing some history of science, if you go back and read, say, Einstein's original papers or Boltzmann's original papers, you can just pick them up and read them. Unlike any paper in a physics journal today where you couldn't even get started if you didn't have a lot of background. And, but these were the great thinkers in physics, and they also realized, especially at the beginning, they had to, to get very clear about what they were doing, and therefore they wrote in a very accessible way. And so some of this is just, again, trying to keep things on that level rather than the much more complicated level that you have to get to when you're doing detailed calculations and things like that. Thank you, Tim. So you just briefly mentioned the twins paradox, and especially because some of our listeners may not be coming to this conversation or may not be coming to the book with much of a background or much experience in the philosophy of physics or in physics classes. Can you, um, let's use this as an example to get into an example of the kind of thing that you're doing in the book. So can you talk a little bit about this? What is the twins paradox? How has the nature of that paradox been presented, um, as you say, in previous work on this that you found unsatisfying or that you wanted to tweak or edit? And so um, how does your treatment of the twins paradox in this book importantly differ from that? Okay, so we can step back a a second to to Newton and to all of classical physics. So in in Newton, it's very explicit. He, He writes about this very clearly. His conception of time was that there are instants or moments of time that are shared or spread throughout the entire universe. So he says that it's the very same moment of time or moment of duration on the, mo- on the moon as it is in London. And that was, that's the sort of picture you have, that if I snap my fingers, that snap of my fingers instigate in- indicates a particular moment of time and you could ask in a sensible way what's going on on the moon right then what's going on in some distant galaxy at the very moment i snap my fingers Um, newton says a a moment of time is spread out through all of space without having parts and time is the succession of all these moments of time and there are certain distances or intervals between them so you can ask how long Past between this event and that event. And there's just one unique, exact, precise answer to that question. And any well-functioning clock would give you the same answer. If that's true, then if you start two people together with good clocks that are synchronized and you let them do whatever they like to do in the meantime, and then you get them back together and put their clocks side by side, the clocks ought to still be synchronized. Because if they're good clocks, they've just measured the total amount of absolute time that's passed between when they were first together and when they meet each other again. Mm -hmm. That's what turns out not to be true in the theory of relativity. So the the simple phenomenon is just that you can have these two twins or whoever with exactly identically manufactured clocks that start out synchronized. Often you say one just stays on Earth and the other gets on a rocket ship and goes far away and comes back. And then when they compare their clocks and they get back together, they're no longer synchronized. They, they show different amounts of elapsed time. And 
if you push that a little further and you say the human body is sort of like a clock and you take this to very extreme lengths, you say, well, one twin could biologically be years younger or years older than his twin, even though they started out the same age. So that's clearly something that's predicted in relativity. And the question is, well, what's the explanation? One of the puzzles that came up was that people mistakenly think that, according to the theory of relativity, everything is relative and all motion is relative. And therefore, uh, twin A moves relative to twin B, but twin B moves exactly in the same way relative to twin A. So how could they possibly come to different conclusions about how much time has passed? But that's just a mistake about the name of the theory. And in fact, the theory is as much about things that are absolute and not relative as it is about things that are relative. And when you ask that question, which is what happened, say, Richard Feynman in his famous uh, uh, lectures, if you post the question that way, it sounds like you're asking, well, what breaks the symmetry between the two twins? And the answer that comes back 99% of the time in, in, in the literature, in the popular literature and in the regular physics literature is what breaks the symmetry is that one of the twins will have to accelerate and the other one doesn't. And that somehow explains or plays a role in explaining why they have different amounts of time that's run off on their clocks. And it's that answer that it has to do with acceleration. It's just wrong. It's just technically wrong. It's incorrect. Um, and the right answer is very simple. It's that it's the, the right analogy is this. Suppose I had two cars identically constructed with perfectly good working odometers, and at some moment they're side by side and their odometers read the same amount of mileage, and then two people get in them and drive them around and then meet later, uh, and the cars are again side by side, and one odometer shows a lot more mileage having gone by than the other. You're not puzzled about that. You say, well, that's just because the odometer is measuring the length of the path that they took. It's measuring the length of the trip that they took between their two meetings, and they didn't went along different paths, and the paths had different lengths, and that's all there is to it. It's exactly that in relativity, just that. The two twins take different paths through space-time, and those different paths can have different lengths, and what clocks measure in relativity is the length of those paths. And the point is just that the notion of acceleration doesn't come into that explanation. Acceleration doesn't have to do with how long the path you're on is. It has to do with how twisted or how bendy it is. And that's just a different feature that it can have. So when everybody points to the acceleration, they're pointing to the wrong thing. And I think if you don't realize that, you can't really understand what's going on. So that's why I wanted to be very explicit about that particular case. Thank you. One of the features of the last part of what you just said is actually really striking to me after reading the book, and that is the reference to the odometer. One of the things that's so um, so wonderful, I think, as a reader who with who is not an expert in this topic who comes to the book is the way, and and in, in particular, I should say, as a footnote, a reader who's interested in. Um, the history of science and medicine from the perspective of the material history, right, bodies and objects, is the way that you're consistently throughout the book grounding these conceptual points that you're explaining in the material world of 
instrumentation of objects, of materials, of bodies. So, you know, one of the the first thing that comes to my mind, because this was really striking to me, I've had courses in the philosophy of physics before, just as, you know, part of my general education in grad school. I'd never heard or I'd never seen presented um, the sort of ideas of different kinds of geometrical structure as corresponding to instruments used in Euclidean geometry. So in chapter one for listeners, um, which is on classical accounts of space and time, you describe the pencil, the straight edge, and the compass as ways to kind of understand the you know, through a kind of material foundation three kinds of geometrical structure. And that was for me an aha moment, you know, like, oh, okay, because it's, you know, for, and I'm sure I'm not the only reader who's going to come to this who, for whom that kind of metaphorical uh, gesture toward material experience is going to be really, really helpful as an explanatory kind of device. Is that something that um, is you're conscious of being important to your teaching? Is that something that you were conscious of bringing to the book? Or is that just something that, um, you kind of take for granted as a way to facilitate explanation of these materials. And by that, I mean an, an explicit grounding in the kind of material, embodied, instrumental, physical world. Well, I, it's an odd thing. My, my kids, I feel very sad about because when they study geometry nowadays, they never pick up a straight edge and a compass and draw a figure and do a Euclidean proof. And I loved that. That was my favorite part of doing math when I was in high school, was actually constructing figures and proving things. And, of course, the proof structure leads you to, to logic in a certain way. But the nice thing about it is if you do geometry in that way, you do get this very concrete sense that you're, as it were, dealing with a, a, a material medium or some kind of physical medium that has a structure and that you're not using numbers to describe it. You're not using equations to describe it. Uh, and then you need to just think, okay, what kind of structure does it have? And the, the basic instruments you're using only make sense if, if there's a certain structure to space that they're indicating, that they're sort of responding to, and it would be part of physics that postulates this structure to the space to then ultimately explain how the instruments work. But I think that's absolutely right, that, that there's so much emphasis on algebra and solving equations and crunching numbers that it's very easy to lose this very tactile sense that there's a physical world we live in, and the point of physics is to try and understand its structure. And probably Euclidean geometry is as unmediated and direct uh, an interaction with with space, as it were, as you can you can come up with. So it was very deep in the way I like to think about things, in the way I'm comfortable thinking about things, and it's a way to take you away from equations, which tend to um, scare some people and confuse some people, and often form a kind of screen between you and the subject matter, because you just get lost in doing pure pure abstract mathematics, which actually isn't helping you much understand the physics of the situation. I mean, it almost makes you, or it, it makes a, at least a reader for whom this is really striking, and, and even listening to you talk about this as well is um, just reinforcing this sense for me. It almost makes you think that it might be possible to write an entire um, sort of comprehensive textbook or comprehensive introduction that's based just on material instruments. Right. I mean, you could you could take this and really expand it out and do, you know, 
Does that make sense? No, I think that's right. There's always, at the end of the day, and I, there's a quote in the book from Einstein, which is very beautiful because he's always someone who's very aware of this. Of course, at the end of the day, you also want a physical explanation of the instruments themselves because they're material bodies. So um, it, it's a kind of very useful way to get into the subject. And then the, the instruments themselves are... I, I guess Einstein said in his own presentations when he presented relativity in terms of the behavior of clocks and rods, he said, well, of course, really what I'm saying is in, inconsistent. It's not as if on the one hand there are electrons and fields and things like that, and on the other hand, clocks and rods. And ultimately, the clocks and rods themselves have to be given a physical analysis. But I think it just gets you into a much better situation to, to understand what you're thinking about by going uh, through this much more concrete medium, at least it is for me. That's right. And I think also this speaks um, very potentially very strongly to another um, set of audience members for the book that we haven't yet talked about, but I'll just mention and, and kind of gesture to for listeners who may not you know, consider themselves as, physis- as physics students or physicists and may not consider themselves as philosophers, but who might self-identify as historians. And I think one of the really, um, one of many really prominent threads of conceptual approach and of historiography in the history of science, medicine, and technology right now, and this has been true um, for for years now, but it's it's really really alive right now. That is an approach to the embodiment of science, to sort of bodily knowledge and the embodiment of ideas and concepts. And I think in that way, this speaks really directly to that and and really interestingly to that. And I think historians reading this who have any interest in that kind of way of understanding the history of science are really going to pick up on that. And it'll really speak to them in interesting ways that might not be obvious from the title, right? Yeah, it it, it might not be. There's a kind of paradox, actually, for this book, uh, a sort of puzzling thing which is which is interesting is that the subject here is space and time as it were by themselves <laughs> and one thing that's not directly material and visible and manipulable are space and time themselves <laughs> so you think well there's if, if physics is ultimately the theory of matter in motion um, this book is about what do you mean by motion <laughs> and I guess the book on quantum physics will be what do you mean by matter uh, so it's it's what's interesting is that most physicists would say they have a much clearer and sharper understanding of space and time, at least if you're just studying, say, uh, special and general relativity. But these are very clear theories that you can really think things through and see exactly what's going on in those theories. And the theory of matter, which is ultimately now quantum mechanics, is ex- just the opposite. Nobody understands it. And there's all kinds of disputes over even what the most basic concepts in it are about. But space and time, the thing we think we understand so clearly, we only ever have this mediated access to because we only draw inferences about space and time from the visible appearance of material objects. So there is a funny kind of uh, paradox that the more invisible thing it somehow is, we've gotten, uh, we feel like we've gotten a much stronger handle on than, than, uh, than the actual matter itself. Now, we've talked a little bit about um, the example of the twins paradox and the ways that your approach here is um, importantly different from other approaches to this and the way that you're presenting it and teaching it. Let's talk a little bit, um, just for a little while, about some of the other specific ways that you've self-consciously take an approach to the material here that differs from other books or similar books or related kinds of work 
that introduce the philosophy of physics. So you mentioned one example that immediately comes to mind because you mention it here explicitly um, in your description of the book is your presentation of special relativity. So you talk about here your decision to focus directly on the geometry of Minkowski spacetime and only secondarily on Lorentz transformations. So because this emerges for the reader as something that um, you're, you're very explicit about, you mention it very clearly as something that you're taking a position on here, can you, can we, um, maybe let's look at this example for okay. a moment. Um, can you talk about this, can you introduce this basic concept for listeners and then talk about your decision to focus on in one way and not another and, and why you made that decision and how that shapes the kind of work that the book does? Okay, so this, this is something that actually probably also does arise from teaching, because I remember very specific episodes. I would teach uh, honors courses, and so I'd have philosophers and physics students and so on. And the physics students would always come in thinking, well, they're well ahead of everybody else because they've been studying the physics in their physics classes. And the way you're commonly taught relativity it has a tremendous focus on coordinate systems. So, so if you lay down one coordinate system and the, the listener in their mind should just think of this simple example that you're used to on a flat Euclidean plane, you can put down Cartesian coordinates, which just look like a nice square grid. But it's obvious that you could take, there are many different ways to do that. You could take one of those grids and twist it a little relative to another grid and you'd have another Cartesian coordinate system. And if you lay down two coordinate systems on a single space, then every point gets two sets of addresses, one in each coordinate system, and then you can write down some equations that take you from the one coordinates to the other. And the thing that are, is called the Lorentz transformations are exactly that. They're a bunch of equations that relate coordinates to coordinates. Now, my view is that is that coordinates are just standing in the way. The coordinate systems don't really exist. They're not physically there. They're sort of an intermediary. And therefore, an equation relating coordinate systems to one another is very abstract and has already taken you rather far away from the physical situation. Um, and that's why, as I said, in, in Euclidean geometry, you just have these instruments and you can draw straight lines and you can draw circles and you can see what kind of structure those things have. And you can do all that without any coordinates or, or anything like that. And I was trying to do the same thing with the physics. Now, my observation from the teaching was this. It's, it is, is there's uh, the second most famous relativistic effect after the twins effect is the so-called Lorentz contraction or Lorentz Fitzgerald contraction. And the way that's normally said is that if I take a rod, a, a meter stick, and set it into rapid motion, it'll shrink. And... I often would ask the students to explain that effect using the Lorentz transformation, which is just this coordinate transformation. And if you're not careful and you just sort of plug numbers into these, into these equations without thinking carefully about what you're doing, you actually end up with exactly the wrong result. It looks like you're being told that the, the rod that you sort of know is supposed to shrink is actually expanding. And what I found these students did, the physics students, the ones who were used to these equations, is that they would do this incorrect thing, and then they would just sort of write some incoherent thing about how there's the regular system and then the prime system, and they'd sort of get them switched back and forth uh, and mix them up in a way so that 
because they knew the right answer was that one of these rods was, as it were, supposed to have shrunk and they were getting the wrong answer. And so they would just, instead of working through what was wrong, they would just sort of switch around the primed and unprimed coordinates. So this whole exercise in algebraic manipulation wasn't giving them a clear view as to what was going on. And I really thought, especially with special relativity, it's intrinsically a very simple theory geometrically. It's very easy to grasp geometrically without any of this stuff, without writing down the Lorentz, without writing down coordinate systems or transformations between coordinate systems. And that was that was why I wanted to present it that way. Now, one of the things that you mentioned in the book in the context of talking about this particular example and your approach there too is also your use of space-time diagrams. And so the use of, because we're talking about, among other things, uh, the kinds of, the the relationships in this material between phenomena and entities that you can observe and those that you can observe, the kind of, and and that's, that really plays out throughout the book as well in the story that you're telling about the philosophy of physics and these fundamental concepts of space and time. Related to that, as a learner uh, about this stuff, as a reader about this stuff, of course, there's also going to be an interplay between the visual and the, and the non-visual, or if, you know, knowing that those two categories can be very complicated and very problematic, right? We don't want to use them in, in simplistic ways. Right. I'm using this basically to um, get at the issue of diagrams and diagramming. This is one of the really striking things about the volume. And of course, in any kind of volume like this, in which observability and also this tension between arithmetic and geometric notions of these concepts, of ways of presenting these concepts are at play, the visual diagrammatic um, elements of the story are going to be really important in the decision to use them in different ways and to use different proportions of them and use them in different moments is also very important to the kind of work that you're doing here. So can you talk a little bit about that? You're your use of an approach to using visual diagrams in the book, and is there anything about your decisions in that um, in that mode that are important to you? Is there anything that the reader should know um, that differentiates your use here from other similar books? Um, anything that you think is important or interesting about your use of diagrams um, in this context in terms of the work that the book is doing? Yeah, I think that the, it this falls together with the same things I've been talking about. That is, we have already a familiar idea of of a space with a kind of structure. The kind of space we're familiar with is Euclidean space, and we're used to thinking about it and there being triangles with various features and so on in it. And not only that, we already have our entire visual system pre-tuned to do almost nothing but present us intuitions in something like Euclidean space. So it's very easy to think visually in terms of spatial structure. Then you take a step back and you ask, okay, well, what kind of structure does Euclidean space have? And you can get fairly clear about that. And again, the talk about the Euclidean instruments helps there. And then you want to use that as an analog. Um, The main point is that a space-time, a relativistic space-time, has a similar kind of structure, in certain ways very similar, in other ways quite different. But if you focus on the similarities, it's some, some of the features that are represented in the diagrams can be quite accurately 
represent what's going on in the space-time. There are other features of the diagrams that will be a bit misleading because they're obviously spatial objects and you're using them to represent spatiotemporal structure. You're using one geometry to represent a different kind of geometry. So you have to be a little cautious. But there are some things you really don't have to be cautious about. And you have this entire developed cognitive apparatus that allows you to think about space directly without use of, of numbers or coordinates. And I'm just trying to recruit that with the appropriate warnings about where you might be a bit misled, but recruit that for understanding space-time structure. Thank you. So we've zoomed into some specific um, elements of you know, points of the text and some specific examples. Let's zoom back out again and talk a little bit about structure. Um, the book, The structure of the book is really striking. It, and it's striking from the perspective of someone who's interested in ways of merging historical and philosophical approaches to the history of science, medicine, and technology, or to understanding, rather, um, science, medicine, and technology and its conceptual and historical and all kinds of other uh, wonderful forms. And you've already talked a little bit um, at, early on in our conversation at the beginning about the way that your own training in and commitment to an education in both history and philosophy of science really shaped uh, your graduate career and shapes the kind of history that you, or the kind of history and philosophy rather that you do. So the structure of the book for listeners who um, haven't yet had a chance to read it, I'll just very quickly lay out the major chapters. There are seven chapters that go from classical accounts of space and time, and this um, one of the things that this chapter does is set out a brief history of debates over space and time um, from very early on in the process. Then we have evidence for spatial and temporal structure, then a chapter on eliminating unobservable structure, special relativity, the physics of measurement, general relativity, and then the direction and topology of time. Now, I mention this in part in the context of talking about the integration of history and philosophy of science, because one of the really notable things about the structure of the book and one of the things that makes it feel like a kind of a continuing process of discovery for the reader. I mean, it really feels like the reader is on the kind of wings or on the back of some of the major thinkers who went through and were responsible for transforming the kinds of ideas that we're reading about in the book, is that the book in some ways moves us historically through time while also moving us through the physical ideas. It's really striking in that way and I think very, very successful. At least that's how, that's one of the things about the structure that really struck me. So can you talk a little bit about your own process of coming to this way of structuring the book. How did you settle on this way of organizing the book? How did you settle on breaking down the story into the parts that you did? And were there any major transformations in the way you thought about the structure over the period in which you were working on the book? I, yeah, I don't think that, the, that there's anything terribly original, of course, in wanting to do things historically, partially, when you do things historically, not surprisingly, people usually start with the more obvious ideas uh, or the, the ones that are, that are easier to grasp immediately and then have to modify them through time as it turns out that those ideas are inadequate or, or show some kind of flaw that needs to be corrected. So the pedagogical method which would be to start with things, as, as Aristotle would say, you start with things that are clearer to us and try and work your way up to things that are clearer in themselves. Um, 
that's always good advice. And I think the history of science, not surprisingly, exactly replicates that. So in, for example, in this part of the, uh, in the part of the story that starts with Newton, who was very explicit about both space and time structure, Newton's picture, I think, is very easy to understand. And then you start to realize that there are some problems or uh, drawbacks to, to using his particular picture of space-time structure and some easy fixes by moving to a slightly modified space-time structure. Now, that idea uh, uh, that there are these different space-time structures that are clearly related to each other is very deeply embedded in the philosophy of physics literature, probably going back most clearly to uh, Michael Friedman's book or all the work of John Ehrman. That work tends to be presented somewhat more technically and with more mathematics. So you can think of part of what I'm doing is just taking this idea of hierarchies of structure and presenting it more visually and following the historical development as you make adjustments to the kind of structure that the physics seems to be um, pointing you to. So I think it's a very, I, I don't think there's anything that anyone would find very surprising. And the other thing about it is physics always proceeds. It has to from a basis. So you start with an older physics and then someone will come up with an interesting idea, but often it involves having assimilated the older physics and then making some adjustment to it. And so it's often hard to understand where you've gotten to without retracing the actual history of, of how the theory developed through time. And I think this is not just history for history's sake, but it's history that clarifies what's going on in the theories in a way you can only understand by seeing the actual order in which things were done and how one thing came in as a correction to something else. Now, you have talked a little bit earlier um, in, our, in our conversation about a certain kind of transformation that happened over the course of working on the volume and insofar as you started out thinking that, or with the directive of doing one volume, right? And this turned into mm-hmm. two. And, and you've mentioned kind of um, incidentally as part of describing that, that it really in some way should be three volumes, right? Yes. Um, so this, this is really interesting. And because also there's a second volume, ostensibly that you're working on that's devoted to ideas of matter, um, moving ahead and sort of moving to the kind of maybe uh, not concluding, but last part of our conversation as we move forward, is there any way in which your approach to this second volume has changed or has been determined by the process of working on this volume? Sort of, can you lead us through a little bit to that volume and what to expect there and whether the way you're thinking about the ideas there has been transformed by the process of doing this book? The second volume will be extremely different than this one, at least in the tone of it, and that's because the actual situation is entirely different. So, as I said, relativity, say general relativity, if you just take it on its own, is an extremely clear theory. Often you might be confused when you first read about it, but the more you think about it, the more those confusions just tend to drop away and after a while, you feel like you, you, you have a very clear view of what that theory is asserting. As soon as we get to matter and the contemporary theory of matter, which is quantum theory, 
You have nothing like that situation at all. You have a situation where nothing is clear, where none of the foundations are settled, where there's all kinds of disputes about absolutely everything in terms of what to think is physically real, what to think is merely a mathematical convenience, what to think is somehow dependent on uh, people's beliefs or expectations, what represents their knowledge. None of this has any clear answer at all. And in most cases, a lot of the proposals are just in, internally incoherent and incomprehensible in themselves. So it's going to be a much more contentious volume to write. And I'm going to be fairly ruthless in only presenting theories that I think are clear, which, which really knocks out a lot of speculative things and a lot of just poorly formulated things. Um, following largely the, the physicist John Bell, if you just if you read Bell's work and you see which kinds of interpretations or understandings of quantum mechanics did he write about, they're only a small set, and they're a small set of the ones he under he saw were well-defined theories. Now, here's an interesting connection, although it goes kind of backwards between the second volume and the first. Everybody understands that there's something in quantum mechanics called the measurement problem that's somehow very important to solve, although people would disagree over what it is and what counts as a solution to it. But the, one associates the notion of a measurement problem very explicitly with quantum mechanics. What I realized in writing this book is that there's a, a very similar structurally, essentially identical problem in relativity. You could call it the relativistic measurement problem. And it's just the one I already mentioned before. That is, it's easy to present the theory as if there are some basic items in the world we call clocks and measuring rods, and then we're just talking about how they behave. But as Einstein pointed out, that can't be right, because we think a clock is just a physical item, and it's subject to physical analysis, and there should be a physical story about how it works that doesn't depend upon calling it a clock. And really... That is the heart of the measurement problem in quantum mechanics as well, that there's an easy way to present the theory which sort of presumes that there are instruments that work certain ways and perform things called measurements. But at the end of the day, you think that can't be right, that somehow these instruments themselves are physical items and whatever they do should be explained by physics. And what you want is for the physics to derive from the physics how they behave without having to go in starting out calling them measuring instruments, just as you don't want to start out calling something a clock. So I think conceptually, these are really the same problem. Nobody notices it in relativity, but it's there. And I was hoping that if people read the first volume and appreciated how you go about solving it in relativity, which is a much clearer venue, then when they get to quantum mechanics, they'll see what's going on there, even though it's a very confused venue. Thank you. So as we come to this closing part of our conversation, um, I would actually, you talk about this with such enthusiasm and the book actually reads as very kind of sparkling in its language and very, it, it, it reads as a book written by somebody who really enjoys the topic. So that's makes it really a pleasure to read in many ways. What do you think within the larger uh, kind of ecology of resources out there that's available for somebody who wants to learn about the philosophy of physics, especially the in the way that grounds it in the kind of historical account the way you do here, um, but you know even including books that don't do that. In that larger ecology, 
What do you think is the most important contribution that your book is making here? What are you most proud of? And what are some of your favorite parts of the book? Well, this is, I mean, we've already mentioned, it sounds very silly, but actually, as I say, the thing that people have most commented on, physicists have most commented on, is just this little thing about the twins paradox. Because many of them, I mean, Sean Carroll, who's a, a great guy, very philosophical guy and thinks hard, and he says, oh, my God, I've been teaching that wrong, too. <laughs> you know, and you can sort of say, well, Feynman got it wrong. And it's not, it's not controversial. I mean, I should mention that. when I, It's not as if what I'm saying about the right way to understand that problem is at all controversial, that any physicist, having thought about it, for five minutes would say that I've made a mistake. It's, it, 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 there's nothing special I've done except point out what everybody ought to have known. Um, but I, I do feel like, I feel like one often can lose when you're doing philosophy of physics and when you're doing physics itself, it's very easy to lose the sense of what it is to really understand something because so much of it is just manipulation of symbols and you can learn rules for how to manipulate the symbols. And this is sort of connected to the Lorentz transformation stuff we were saying. Those are well-defined equations. But in the manipulation of symbols, you lose contact with what it is to really comprehend what's going on physically. And so I just am very happy when I can have a little thing that a lot of people, you say, oh, yeah, we didn't really understand what was going on. Now I see what's going on there. Not so much for the importance of that particular part, but just to remind people that you can comprehend things clearly, that this is this is the state we all ought to be aspiring to, to understand things in a, in a very direct way. Well, Tim, we've taken up a lot of your time, and thank you so much for letting me do this. It's, it's a great book. I learned a ton from it. There's a ton of stuff in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about very clearly, right? So it's full of lots of examples, lots of really great descriptions, lots of explanations of all of these um, examples that I mentioned uh, when I talked about the structure of the book and lots, lots, lots more beyond that. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to point out for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it? Um, no, I guess the answer to that question now is no. I can't think of anything particularly I would want to say. About <laughs> okay, so now that the book is out and you've already mentioned that you're working on the second volume here, so we can, we can talk about that if you'd like, but um, that and beyond that, um, what's next for you? What project or projects are you inspired by right now? And what's what's occupying your time and your brain? Right. So, uh, I mean, the second volume I am working on, but that's not the main thing. The main thing I've been working on for about the last five years, a huge, tremendously huge project that connects up with this book in a very straightforward way, which is that at, at the very foundational level, we talked about geometrical structure and different kinds of geometrical structure, like straight line structure, circles, and, and you think about metrical structure, distances. There is, in the account of the geometry of a space, the most fundamental, the most primitive structure that's there is the one that determines continuity, what counts. I, I said there are three instruments that Euclid used, the straight edge, the compass. You usually think of just straight edge and compass, but of course you also need a pencil or a stylus. And the pencil or stylus is the most important one, right? You can't use the other instruments without a pencil or a stylus. And when you ask, well, what does a pencil do? If it's used properly, it draws continuous lines, unbroken continuous lines. And so this notion of continuity in a space it is the most fundamental geometrical notion there is. And there, the mathematical account of that that presently exists is in a, in a branch of mathematics called topology. 
And largely as a result of doing exactly this kind of thing, in fact, I started this when I was teaching a class on space-time theory, I realized I didn't understand topology. This comes back again to really understanding things. I just didn't understand how it worked. I didn't understand the basic way topology is put together. And not only that, I thought there must be a better way to do this, a different way and actually a better way. And so what I've been working on for the last five years is actually building an entirely new mathematical tool um, to, to cover the same area that standard topology does, but on an entirely different basis. And so this is a monstrously large project. Um, the first volume of that will be coming out in February, I think, from Oxford, which is just the mathematics of it. So that's going to be a book called uh, New Foundations for Physical Geometry, the Theory of Linear Structures. And then there'll be a successor volume to that, which will be applying the mathematics to physics, um, which will be sometime before that's done. So I have this is the project that, that at the end of the day will probably be about 10 years work by the time I'm done. But it really flows out. I mean, there's even a tiny little footnote in that book where I say, I don't actually agree with the way this is done in standard topology, but I'm not going to fight about that here. <laughs> and so where I'm fighting about it is going to be in these two huge volumes, um, one of which is on the way and the other which will come out someday. Well, fabulous. Well, congratulations on that work as well. And I'll look forward to reading that. And if you'd like to talk about the first volume, get in touch with me. And I would love to talk with you about that as well. So, <laughs> congratulations on this book. Best of luck in the current project and the two huge volumes that are going to come out of that. And thank you so much, Tim, for talking to me today. This has really been a pleasure. Thanks. It's been very nice for me, too. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.